Philippians chapter 1, and uh, then turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 also. Hold your place there. And if you would go ahead and stand with me, I want to begin reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is not my main passage, but I want to read it to set the tone to be just a way of introduction and, and uh, have our thoughts going in the right direction. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 1. I want us to focus really on this first verse. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, though I basically am the, the best orator that the planet has ever known, and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have all the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long, and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Does not behave, does not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. So as I mentioned, the main verse I want us to keep in mind is the first verse. Though I speak with the tongue of angels and men, and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Now, over to Philippians chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 12, we'll just read five verses. Paul says, but I would not have you, but I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife. And some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and therein do I rejoice, yea, and I will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. You may be seated. This, this evening's title, we are joking around once again before the message, I had thought about the title of this evening's message being the preaching of contention, or contentious preaching, or the preaching of envy, or preaching of envy and strife, and so forth. But there's, other, there's another kind of preaching that's mentioned in this passage, and I think for the title, I will go with that if I have to have a title. I suppose I should just preach the message and not worry about titles. But, um, but the title would be Preaching of Goodwill or Preaching of Love. We can focus on that if we want to as well. I want to consider tonight the two different ways in which we can preach Christ. But first I want to begin looking at verse 12 as Paul sets the tone for what it is that he's 
addressing in this in these few verses. He says in verse 12, let's just go through these verses one by one. He says in verse 12, But I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather into the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. <coughs> this epistle to the Philippians was written while Paul was under house arrest in Rome. He had been imprisoned for two years in Jerusalem, as we recently uh, studied, and now he was in Rome, which was a minimum of at least another two years under house arrest. If you put his shipwreck and his travels and all the, the different things that happened, he was, as he wrote this letter, he was nearing the end of his four and a half year prison sentence, if you will. That's a long time to be locked up. And so um, I want to consider, he mentions that none of these things which have happened unto me, what is he talking about? He's talking about none of these trials that I've gone under before the people in Jerusalem. And now he's in Rome going before Nero. He says, none of these things that have happened unto me, or these things that have happened to me have fallen out, he says, that they've happened because it was for the furtherance of the gospel. As a little bit of background, Paul was warned that he would be arrested in Jerusalem. But he insisted on going. Turn over to Acts chapter 21. So Paul um, and, the, and the people of God who were with him, that traveled with him, they cared about him greatly. And they did not really understand why it is that he insisted on going to Jerusalem knowing that it wasn't going to turn out well for him. Uh, verse 20, 10 of chapter 21, it says, And as we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea, that is um, in Caesarea where uh, Philip was, um, they were staying with him, and it says, As they were there, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. And when he was come unto us, he took Paul's girdle and bound his own hands and feet and said, Thus saith the Holy Ghost, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that, that owns this girdle, and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when he heard these things, uh, and when we heard these things, both we and they of that place, we besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What mean ye to weep and to break mine heart? For I am ready not to, for I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem. For the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. Now, this is Luke writing this. And so Luke is including, Luke was one of those who was begging Paul, asking him, Please don't go. And Paul said, Listen, even if they kill me, I'm going to Jerusalem. And so, um, this is what was some of the background there. The Lord comforted Paul, uh, as we considered recently in Acts chapter 23, after Paul was arrested and he was in Jerusalem. It says, In the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. Continue, consider this furtherance of the gospel. Um, in... Uh, um, in our passage here, he says that these things have happened rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. He's pointing out that there is a reason 
why these things happened. Um, it, was, it was known, it was prophesied. The Lord had said that this was one of the reasons that Paul was chosen of him to be an apostle. Go over to Acts chapter 9. None of these things were an accident. There was a reason for it all. Acts chapter 9 and verse 16. This is immediately after what we refer to as Paul's conversion, after he was saved on the Damascus Road. And uh, the Lord is speaking to Ananias, and it says in verse 16, But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he that is Saul who became Paul is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And so if we look at what Paul is saying in Philippians 1 and verse 13, when he says, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace. When he says all the palace, he's not speaking now of just Jerusalem. He's speaking of in Nero's palace. He has gone by being obedient to the will of God. Paul, even though other men did not believe it was the Lord's will, Paul believed it was the Lord's will to go to Jerusalem. It didn't make sense, but he was willing to go. And so he went there, and as a result, the Lord, we see Paul's plan for his life that the Lord had said before he was even baptized, not to Paul himself, to another man who was going to baptize Paul, the Lord said he is going to go before kings, he is going to go before uh, Israel, and he is going to go before the Gentiles for his, for his name's sake. And so here Paul is. He's in bonds, he's in Rome, he's gone before Nero, and so forth. And so, as we consider this, what Paul's willingness to serve the Lord, no matter what the situation is. I want to ask us a challenging question. What are we willing to endure, notice this, for the furtherance of the gospel? Paul said, these things have happened unto me, have fallen out, rather for the furtherance of the gospel. Shouldn't the furtherance of the gospel be our primary concern? Yes. At the end of the day, after considering all the things that we believe, considering all of what we want to see happen in our life, is the furtherance of the gospel at the top of the list as to what we would like to see happen, how God would use us. And I'm not talking about just for preachers. In everybody who is a child of God, is the furtherance of the gospel at the top of the list as to what you would like to see God do with you in your life? Now, why am I bringing all these things up? Um, I want us to keep these two things in mind as we continue. That Paul was in the Lord's will in being bound. Regardless of what other people thought, Paul was in the Lord's will in being bound. And it was for the furtherance of the gospel. But not everybody believed that this was the case when it came to Paul. Let's go on in verse 14. Paul says, And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He goes on and he's pointing out the positive things that are the result of his incarceration and his arrests and so forth. 
because it has been an encouragement, it has given boldness to the people of God to see what Paul is willing to suffer, to see what Paul is willing to go through. He says that they wax confident. I'm getting ahead of myself in my notes here. But they're waxing confident by my bonds. And they are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now first I want to notice, this is very important as we consider this passage, that he refers to these people as the brethren in the Lord. The brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. We need to take special note of this phrase because it's important in the next two verses. Brethren in the Lord. And the in the Lord is a very important part of this phrase. Remember Peter on the day of Pentecost when he addressed those men, the the main crowds there, and he said, men and brethren. When he began to preach, he said, men and brethren. He was meaning, he was addressing them as fellow Jews, as fellow Hebrews. They were not brethren in the Lord. They had just got done persecuting the Lord Jesus Christ. But men and brethren, hear my words. You know, there's a way in which you can address people that way. Uh, my fellow countrymen, my brethren that way. But brethren in the Lord is very specific. Yeah. There's, that, that is, uh, it rules out. It also rules out simply anyone who professes to be a Christian, such as those who deny the deity of Christ. It doesn't matter whether Jesus Christ is in the title of their denomination. They are not brethren in the Lord. Jehovah's Witnesses are not my brethren in the Lord. Um, the, the, the Mormons are not our brethren in the Lord. Um, those of the Roman Catholic Church, anyone within the Roman Catholic Church who identifies with that theology, and uh, all the people who run that organization are not our brethren in the Lord, even though they claim the name of Jesus Christ. And so um, just because people call themselves a Christian doesn't necessarily mean that they are our brethren in the Lord. I would not consider the Church of Christ member to be or uh, um, people from that denomination to be our brethren in the Lord. Because, why? Because they preach another gospel. But the people that Paul is going to be addressing in these next two verses, why this is so important, is he addresses there's two types of preaching that are happening. And they're both being done by brethren in the Lord. Now believe me, Paul knew how to identify those who were not brethren in the Lord. And he even warned the church in Ephesus that there will be grievous wolves who shall enter in among you um, and shall uh, draw away many after themselves. There are those who, uh, was talked about in Sunday school, those who, um, whose God is their belly, yeah. those who we are to mark those, those are not our brethren. They might look like brethren and talk like brethren, but at the end of the day with their false doctrine, they're, they're not our brethren. But what's so amazing to me is as we consider this message tonight is this is talking about brethren, brethren in the Lord who preach with two different motivations. But let's just finish this verse um, and look at what it says here. Waxing confident in my bonds. Paul had been in prison for one year, then two years. And people wondered, when is he going to get out? And then three years. 
And man, they're praying for him. They're praying for his release. They're, he could be doing so much for the Lord if he would get... And then it didn't happen. And four years goes by. He's already been in Rome for two years. What's got to happen? See, we read it all in history. We all read it as fact that happened in the past. But they were living it. And four years has gone by. Paul is still in Rome. And eventually it begins to creep into the mind like... It's like the friends of Job. What has he done wrong? What, what is Paul... What is Paul, what's wrong with Paul that God is just leaving him in prison to rot? Because he, there's obviously something wrong, but there's another aspect in which this actually encouraged people. And what I just mentioned there will come up in the next verse. There's an aspect here where people were growing more confident because of his bonds. If Paul can do that, then what could he do with me? And if Paul's not afraid to preach the gospel, no matter what might happen to him, then I can preach the gospel. And so it can be an encouragement uh, to us. It says they are more, more bold to speak the word without fear. I've misread this in the past, just reading it quickly and thought that because it's almost as though I read it almost as though because he was locked up, people were out there were more willing to just speak and say things contrary to what Paul would teach because he's locked up and they didn't have fear anymore. But no, because he's locked up, because he is, because of his bonds, um, waxing confident by his bonds, they are much more bold. Notice what it says, to speak the word. They're speaking the word. Well, what is the word? The word is the preaching of the gospel. They're much more confident to preach the word without fear. That's important. He wrote to Timothy and told him, not, don't be ashamed of my bonds. Don't be um, afraid to preach the gospel. Um, and don't be ashamed of me in my bonds. We know the words of Jesus. And they probably by now had the words of Jesus in Matthew. Where it says, fear not them which kill the body, but are able to... Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. But rather fear him which is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. We can have those scriptures, but we as human beings, um, we're encouraged when we're emboldened when we see other people like us who live for God, who fight the battle, who stand for things, who don't compromise. And, and we're encouraged in that. And he's saying that people were being encouraged and waxing confident by his bonds in that way. And so it goes from, in that case, it goes from being an ideal, something that we're told to do, to something that we can see in person. They were seeing this, that what Jesus had spoken was being put into practice. And so now let's go to verse 15. This is all just kind of background of... Uh, what Paul is speaking of, his situation that he's in. And he, and he goes right into this and says, Some indeed, some who? Some brethren indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely. And this is a key phrase. Supposing to add affliction to my bonds. But the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. 
I want to put these two phrases clearly because there's two verses and it's jumping back and forth between the two. So let's read, let's look at these. I put these in a phrase so that we could see them clearly, what he's saying. What he's saying is, some of the brethren of the Lord indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife. These same brethren of the Lord preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. I just combined all of what he's saying there. And then he says, some of the other brethren that don't fall into that camp, the brethren of the Lord, preach Christ of a good will, out of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. So you have two different, uh, two different uh, types of preachers here. The first one, that I want to consider is those who are preaching Christ of envy, strife, and contention. Mm. Not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bonds. It doesn't say that they were attempting to preach Christ. In fact, they were preaching Christ. They were preaching the gospel. And he says later that he rejoices in the fact that they're preaching the gospel. So they weren't preaching a false gospel. These were not false teachers. These were not uh, wolves in sheep's clothing, these were brethren of the Lord who indeed preached Christ. But they preached Christ in the wrong spirit and with the wrong motivation. So we have to notice, it is possible to preach Christ or any other doctrine in the Word of God with a wrong motivation. It is. You can preach Christ as we looked at in 1 Corinthians 13. You can preach Christ without love. You can lay it all out there in black and white. And you can preach it because you know it's the truth. You can, um, you can be correct in any doctrinal issue. But you can preach the right thing the wrong way. That's just a simple fact. You can preach the right thing the wrong way. Not just in spirit in which it is delivered, but in the arguments or the scriptures as they're misapplied. Just because someone enters the pulpit and preaches a message on a doctrine stated in our statement of faith does not automatically mean that I'm going to amen all the points, even if, they, if there are indeed fallacies. It is possible to preach a message that the meat of the message is right. I've listened to many messages on sermon audio and uh, things that are sent to me, and I, I've, he- I've heard a lot of different preaching, or I'll be in a meeting and I'll, hear, and I'll hear a message. And a lot of times I'll hear the message and he believes what I believe. But as part of his message, he'll bring out some points, and I'm like, that doesn't have anything to do with that at all. Right? And Or he'll just someone will go just off down a rabbit trail and just start hammering on uh, certain people or groups. And I'm like, that doesn't really have anything to do with that. How does that happen? That happens because when you have an agenda, when you go into it with this, uh, with an agenda (laughs) that is not Holy Spirit led, it's not about preaching the word. It's about getting a certain point across then that is when this indeed begins to happen. 
if something from the Word of God is true, then there will be plenty of scriptures to back that up. For example, one of the one of the most interesting topics in the Word of God uh, that I find this happens a lot, I believe, is concerning eschatology. Mm. You can be premillennial and oh, and argue it in all the wrong ways, <laughs> right? Or, or you know, maybe half of what you lay out is right lines up with the word of God, but then you go to this verse and this verse, and, and we see that in all kinds of doctrine where when people lay out a doctrine, they feel like they have to do a grab-all. Sometimes we see oh, that in yeah. church doctrine. Yeah. And so every verse that has anything to do, and I'm not going to get real specific, but any verse that has anything to do with a particular thing, well, they just do a grab-all, and they try to apply everything that has this particular word in it and, and make it apply to this particular thing. That's what happens when you go in and you in your preaching with an agenda, and you're not just preaching the word of God as it as it comes. And so, um, what is being talked about in this passage, though? I say all this to say that Paul is saying that they were preaching the right thing the wrong way, and we can fall into that trap too. But in this passage, what was it talking about? I don't think it's very easy to determine exactly what Paul was talking about. What was he talking about when he says that they preach Christ of contention? They preach Christ of envy and strife. And not sincerely, but they preach Christ. Like, you know, you can really scratch your head oh, and wonder what it, what it is that it's talking about. But I believe, based on these scriptures, that the contention was aimed at Paul. Perhaps when they preached Christ, they emphasized how that the gospel, and the, and the reason I say that is because if you, if you look here, um, in verse 16, he says, the one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, comma, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. These were personal attacks on Paul when he says this. And so, um. I think perhaps when they preached Christ, they, emphasize, they would emphasize, I'll give you some examples of how they could have preached Christ of contention, supposing to add affliction to his bonds in this way. They could have emphasized how that the gospel had gone to the Gentiles. They could even show how the Gentiles to whom they <coughs> preached, they, they taught these things, they showed them scriptures out of the Old Testament that spoke of such things. Um, I think that they could not help but point out that God had indeed called Paul to go to the Gentiles and use that as one of their preaching points in preaching the gospel to Gentiles. Because this is where these preachers, these brethren now that he's talking about are in all these Gentile countries scattered around the Roman Empire. It's no longer about Israel. And so um, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And so... I don't think they could, they could not resist in pointing to the fact that Paul had turned his back on his calling and insisted, instead of continuing to go to the Gentiles, he had gone to the Jews. I'm just speculating. But, you know, I've had conversations with people who still, here we are 2,000 years later, and people still speculate as to why God allowed him to be in jail for so long. And the reality is, is 
I think maybe the reason God allowed that to happen is because, you know, Paul was supposed to be going to the Gentiles. And Paul was actually supposed to have gone to Rome and Spain, and he could have gone all the way to England and Germany if it wasn't for the fact that he was so stuck on the, Gentile, on the Jews. And he cared so much about the Jews because he had been a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and, and he, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and he just couldn't let it go. And Paul, in his own words, had Paul not said in writing to the church in Rome, where he's now incarcerated. He told them how that oh, his, uh, oh, his heart's desire what is, was that Israel might be saved. And God had turned his back on Israel and it's now to the Gentiles and Paul's living in rebellion. I believe that this is some of the preaching that was being done out of because Paul dealt with men being jealous of his ministry. Mm. They, ministers back then... Imagine being a pastor in some of these outlying uh, churches, these Gentile churches. And Paul was the one who went through there with Silas or Barnabas and started these churches years ago. And everything was about Dr. Paul. (laughs) Isn't that what we do today? I'm just talking about things that happen today. It's all about who started the church. And it doesn't matter. It could be a hundred years after the church was started and people are still concerned, well, that's not how so-and-so would have done it. And the pastor's frustrated. He's like, it doesn't matter how so-and-so would have done it. I'm the pastor here now. And that good intention can now end up turning into jealousy and envy. And what was so special about Mr. Dr. So-and-so? Well, back then, it was even more that way because it was the Apostle Paul. And this Apostle Paul, from these preachers' standpoint, he's, he's in prison, he's against God's will, he should have stuck with going to the Gentiles, and now, now he has all this time to write because now he's in prison and he's not out here evangelizing and preaching the gospel, so now he just has time to sit around on his hands and write letters to all these churches and tell them how to do things. I'm, this, is, this is how human beings are. Yeah, and Paul was addressing the fact that there are people... Yes, they preach Christ, but they use Paul as a launching pad to go out and just really emphasize about how the gospel's really supposed to be going to the Gentiles and so, so forth. I'm using that as an example. We can speculate, but people still speculate as to why Paul was incarcerated and had to do all these things. And so um, they preached motivated by envy. Paul's the one that is saying why they're doing these things. Isn't it an interesting thing? He says, they preach Christ of envy and strife, and some also preach of goodwill. The one preach Christ of a contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. So they're preaching the right thing. And he says, but they're not preaching sincerely. The main point of this, without knowing exactly what it was, that they were preaching exactly, What it does tell us is that men can preach the right thing the wrong way for the wrong reasons. I don't desire to bring out all the ways in which men are doing the same kind of preaching today. There are so many factions among the brethren of the Lord, though. As Paul stated it, Paul's the one that called them brethren of the Lord. And we have brethren of the Lord, and there are so many factions among the brethren of the Lord. And as men preach this doctrine and that doctrine, and sadly even the gospel, 
Many times they cannot resist taking the competition, as if you will, down a notch or two. Sarcasm, name-calling, overstating the facts, flat-out telling untruths about other Christians from the pulpit in the name of truth. That's called slander. Pastor was talking about it this morning in Sunday school. As he was began his, going through his Sunday school lesson, I thought, man, there might not be any reason for me to bring this message tonight because he brought out the fact that there are people on both sides. Take the doctrines of grace, for example, but there are people on both sides who they'll make these slanderous accusations. We know it's a sliding scale. There are people um, who believe the doctrines of grace and they go so far as to believe in covenant theology. And then there are people who believe in the free will of man and salvation, and they don't believe in the sovereignty of God. And, and we can go and we can make statements about anybody who's anywhere on the other side of us is they preach a man-centered gospel. Isn't that what happens? If they're a four-and-a-half pointer, they preach a man-centered gospel. They don't even, they don't even uh, uh, preach easy believism. And yet... They preach a man-centered gospel. Well, that's slander. That's not true. They preach the gospel. And so we, we are fond of overstating things and taking things to such a degree that after a while they're not true. Often this is done not in an attempt to bring people into the fold. It's not in an attempt to convert one of the lost to Christ, or convert one of those in that camp to come to understand the truth. It's about building walls, building barriers, and drawing lines between us and them. Um, I was talking to Vincent, uh, Vincent Troxell down in Smithville, and he was talking about how when he was in North Carolina, he grew up in a church that uh, didn't believe in the sovereignty of God concerning election and so forth. And those people spoke so viciously against people who believed in the doctrines of grace that he seriously questioned when he heard there was a church or this where these people come from, you doubt whether or not they're even saved. You know, and they just talk about them so viciously. And he's like, but then when I got to study in my Bible and the more and more and I got to realize, he's like, I brought it to my pastor. And I said, oh, you know, it seems to me, it seems like, you know, God chooses. <laughs> it was real simple for him. He was really young, but he's like, it seems to me that oh, there's such a thing as election. I mean, it talks about elect. And, and, and his pastor literally said, oh, that's the way they talk over there in that, in that other camp. You know, that's the way they talk. And, you know, we have no business. In, and it just got his attention. He's like, but that's what the Bible says. <laughs> and you see, but sometimes things are so... Because it, it's, all, it's all out of being defensive. And it's like we're afraid to just talk about things the way they are. Right. Just talk about things the way they are. There is a huge difference concerning translations between the Jehovah's Witnesses who deny it flat out, without question, they deny the deity of Christ. They have their own translation. The New Revised Standard Version, I think it is, or the NRSV, the New World Translation, came out in 1961 or whatever. But here's a crazy idea, crazy concept. Until that, they didn't have Westcott and Hort's translation, or translations. They used the KJV. They used the KJV until 1961. 
Isn't that an interesting thing? Oh, you see, you can overstate things to such a degree as to lead people to believe that anybody who has a translation other than KJV, and I'm KJV, but you can overstate things to such a degree as to make it seem like people don't believe in uh, justification by faith or in the Trinity if they have a translation that comes from the translation that Westcott and Hoare had. You can overstate it when the reality is that... Um, if you turn over to Romans chapter 5. <clears throat> like a statement can be made that, you know, people say they believe in justification by faith, but then they have a Bible that doesn't teach justification by faith. Well, Romans 5.1 says this. I'm using this as a prime example of how we can overstate things when they're not true. And when you do that, it doesn't hold any water. It doesn't hold any water. It says, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you know that in the NASB, it says, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In the NIV, it says, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It all says the same thing. You can say these things, but... They're not necessarily true. Overstating things does not do any good either. And so we need to be careful when we're preaching that the motivation behind why we're doing it, that the spirit with which we're doing it doesn't actually do damage to the actual truth that we're trying to get across. We're trying to stand for the truth. It's not necessary to exaggerate. It's not necessary to go to these links. Just speak the truth. Um, often, as I mentioned, these things are not done in an attempt to help people and bring them in, but it's about building up walls. <coughs> One of the reasons that this preaching is done a lot of times in churches is because when they're preaching this way, they believe that they're preaching to the choir, so to speak. They're preaching to in their churches. Or they go and visit another church that's of like faith, and so they preach that way. But they're not <laughs> preaching. And so when they preach like that, and you're preaching, and, well, it's in the statements of faith, and we all agree on these things, it's almost as though it doesn't matter how the preaching is done. The motivation behind the preaching, well, I didn't. There wasn't anything in there that didn't line up with a statement of faith. Um, there should be more than that. And what I'm pointing out is that Paul says that these people are preaching Christ. They're preaching Christ. But they're doing it in the wrong way. Mm. What danger is there when this kind of preaching happens? As long as we're preaching what we believe, but we don't care about how we say it, and so forth, is because the more inflammatory the preaching is, the more the walls are built up, the more we talk about, we spend more time talking about what other people don't believe, and we spend more time pointing the fingers. The danger is that when the preaching of contention is the primary tone, just the tone of the church, 
the people in the pew listening to it, the new converts listening to it, the people who have been saved for a long time listening to it and tolerate such preaching, embrace that mentality. And soon it becomes the culture of the church. It just becomes the culture of the church. And then when they go into the community and they go and meet people at their job and they say that they're a Christian, and oh, where do you go? Oh, I go over here to some church that, you know, doesn't line up exactly. Or they don't use the same Bibles. We, we automatically say, oh, they don't believe nothing. And then you don't have nothing to do with them. Because eh, there's a bunch of believe-nothing Christians out there. And, oh, it can, it can foster these mentalities. I know, I have known person after person after person who has ended up with a mentality that where things have to be so exact and so right in other churches that when they end up in a place where there is no church, they can't find anybody that's as good as them and nobody believes anything. I literally hear those statements all the time. Just can't find a church out here that believes anything. And they end up not going anywhere. And then you end up finding, as you get further into the conversation, you realize it's like, oh no, they found a church that was KJV. They found a church that was local church. They found a church that was, oh, maybe even believe the doctrines of grace, but they're all millennial. Or flip it around. Oh, they, they're, they're pre-trib, they're KJV, they're local church, but they're like four and a half pointers. And it's like, it has to be, and, and, they, and there's this mindset they don't believe anything because they're not exactly like us. Both sides of the aisle can get just as carried away as the other. There's carnal preaching. What's going on here is carnal preaching. It is done out of envy, strife, um, contention, and so forth. They're brethren, but this is how they're preaching. One of the dangers that we all have as preachers, and you have as preachers of Christ out in the community as church members, is that we are still tied to this earthly physical body with all of our human faults. None of us are beyond preaching or behaving in a carnal way with good intentions. With good intentions, and let me explain. For preachers behind the pulpit, I believe, what's been one of my observations, for preachers behind the pulpit, their personality and character traits they had before they were saved can enter into their messages or even how they view other people. This is part, one of the dangers of falling into the trap of not being Holy Spirit led and not um, living in the Spirit, but letting our personal, the way we are by nature, before we were even saved, dominate how we preach. And how we are in the community. Give you an example. A person saved who already has a mild, humble attitude, who would rather flee confrontation than deal with it, may tend to be mild from the pulpit when assertiveness is required. And that assertiveness and boldness really can only come from the Holy Spirit if it's proper. A person can have boldness and not be Holy Spirit led because that's just how they are by nature. But there's nothing more powerful than a person who is bold by nature, who when he gets behind the pulpit is 
who's mild by nature, and he's bold. He's able to stand in the face of of trials and tribulations. It's not his personality. And when you know the person, and you know that's not their personality, and they are, that's a powerful thing. Um, A person who was saved from a terrible past and called to preach may let some of that come out when he's preaching, when he should be more pastor-like. And that happens because he is not being led of the Spirit as much as he should. A person who was always critical before, I'm talking about before they were saved, a person who was always critical of the motivation of others and leaned toward conspiracy theories as a lost person, often when they are not led of the Spirit, can drift into fringe areas of doctrine and be an extremist right wing from the pulpit. It can happen when they're not Spirit-led. These are all things that by nature we have to be very careful of. And these things can bleed over for the church members as well. The same applies both in church context and the workplace. Don't let your personality or your carnal preferences dictate how you handle spiritual matters. Now I want to talk about preaching of goodwill. Paul says others, by contrast, preach Christ of goodwill, out of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. Now see, this is why I think what they were preaching was in relation to um, his own situation because he clearly says that these other people, the way they preached, they did so, uh, um, what was his word? Um, he preached uh, of contention, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bonds. But the others preach out of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. They did so, when they preached Christ, they did so out of sincerity. No personal agenda. Um, They did so out of goodwill, out of love. Perhaps in their messages, when when reference was made to Paul, instead of it being negatively, they made reference uh, to him in positive ways. They would say things like, let's remember to pray for the Apostle Paul, or Brother Paul, or I don't know how people referred to Paul back in the day, but... Let's remember to be sure and pray for Paul. It's been four years. He's going through very difficult times. They would refer to him and remember him fondly. They would know that Paul, formerly injurious and a hater of Christ, out of love for Christ, how he, they would look at it on a positive way, how that he had a love almost equal for both the Jew and the Gentile. How in the face of risk of imprisonment and even death, he was still willing to go back to Jerusalem one last time. That he might just have one more chance. So instead of looking at it from a negative standpoint and trying to figure out, they would preach Christ and use Paul as as an example of how he loved everybody, Jew and Gentile. And it lines up with his epistles. See, look in his epistles. This is what he says in his life shows that when they preached the gospel and they made reference to Paul, they did so in a complimentary way throughout his life. Whether it was to get to the, how much suffering did Paul endure going to the Gentiles? Much more than he did when he went to Jerusalem, if you think about it. Now, a lot of the persecution he endured was at the hands of the Jews in those Gentile places, but 
Paul suffered and suffered and suffered going around and planting Gentile churches. And now he's incarcerated for having such a strong desire to preach to his people, the the Jews. And so they could have said, we trust that it's the Lord's will. None of this necessarily makes sense to us. It seems like Paul could surely be doing more out here than he is in there. But we trust that it is the Lord's will that while he's in prison, the Lord will use him. He'll be a blessing to everyone that comes in contact with him. And maybe even the emperor will get saved. He has an opportunity to go yes. before Nero. What if, what if Nero gets saved? And so when they preached Christ, when they looked at things, they looked at it in a positive way. Not to add afflictions to his, not to add to his bonds. And Paul, here's what's so sad is Paul knew what people were doing and saying about him. And it could have really gotten to him. It could have really eaten away at him. And this is where I want to, this is where I want to conclude. What was his response? He says in verse 18, this is his conclusion. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And therein do I rejoice, yea, and I will rejoice. He was able to look at things and be like, listen, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how they're saying it. It matters how they're saying it. But as far as how it affects me, I'm not going to let it affect me. I rejoice in the fact that they're preaching the gospel. And if they're throwing me under the bus while they're preaching the gospel, as long as people understand that God has gone to the Gentiles and the gospel's for the Gentiles and Christ came to seek and to save that which is lost and they're preaching Christ to the Gentiles, at the end of the day, as long as that's being done, then I rejoice. And if they do it on this other hand, then I rejoice. And so, oh, you know, many, many times, as I mentioned before, I've listened to a message that contained the proper doctrinal truth and yet cringed at the method and means by which it was delivered. It is a grief, and yet I can still praise God that the truth was in it, and God can still use it in spite of the messenger. I am sure, and it may be that way tonight, (laughs) that someone listening to me online a year from now, or maybe even right now, they've been just sweating, they're so uncomfortable listening to my message. I am sure that some have felt that way when I preached. That they're like, man, I agree with the general gist of the message, but man, that's just horrible. Right? (laughs) Listen, every preacher's had people listen to him and be that way. We're human. We're going to preach messages and we'll say things that were not done with the proper means. I've had some people actually give me advice after a message. And maybe you've had the same thing happen to you, Pastor, where as soon as a message is over, they'll be like this. They'll be like... Hey, that was a really good message, and, and I don't mean to take away, any, take away anything from you. In fact, I think you do a really good job of preaching, but um, if I could just give you some advice. Um, it'd probably be really good to leave politics out of it, or it'd probably be really good to do this, or it'd be really good to do that. You know, if I could just give you some two cents. And uh, oh, so that's how it is. That's, that's how it is when we preach. Oh, we're not perfect. Paul did not take things personal, and he left it with the Lord. The preaching of the cross took all the priority 
when it came to Paul, when it, from concerning how Paul looked at things. The saving of lost souls took all priority. <clears throat> if him being, in, remember going back to how he started, he could take joy and satisfaction in knowing that what he was enduring, what he was going to, through, it was for the furtherance of the gospel. And at the end of the day, that was what was that's what mattered. Oh, when we lose sight of the mission at hand, we have greatly erred. The salvation of one more soul, that's what's important. The baptism and membership of one more soul, that's what's important. The sanctification and edification of one more person, that's what's important. Paul did not let he did not overly concern himself with the motivation of others in this passage. We don't see that. Not that he ignored it. Because after all, think about this. He wrote, he addressed what was going on publicly. Mm. When he, he wrote to the Philippians, and these letters were shared among the churches. And he said, this is what's going on. And when I, as I was studying this and I was thinking, he's talking about that some of the brethren are saying these things. And doing this, preaching this way, and some are doing this and preaching this way. And I was thinking, he probably knew that some of those brethren were going to get the message at some point. (laughs) They were going to read this letter. He didn't ignore it. He addressed it. But the way he addressed it and how he handled things is how we should do so. Oh, he did address the, the preaching of envy openly. In a letter for all to read, but he did not let it deter him. Paul did not cease to continue to view these men who preached insincerely. He said they don't do so insincerely, but they were still brethren in the Lord. At the end of the day, I think that we all need to take into consideration that um, we need to remember that not everybody who claims the name of Christ is our brethren in the Lord, as I already mentioned. But if we know what they believe about salvation, and we really believe that they are saved, even though they don't agree with us on a lot of things, we need to respect the fact that they're brethren in the Lord. And until we know otherwise that they're not brethren in the Lord, we need to treat them as brethren in the Lord. It's very important. God pays attention to how we treat brethren in the Lord. Amen.